Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We said we were going to talk about Cambridge Analytica, and we are, but we don't think that that's the real story. This is about Facebook and this is about surveillance capitalism and that's what we're going to talk about today. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. It's a pleasure, as always, to have John Norton on the podcast. John's weekly column in The Observer is the must-read if you want to understand this story and more generally what technology is doing to our politics. It's also a pleasure to welcome for the first time Jennifer Kopp, who is the coordinator of a new research initiative in Cambridge, which is about trustworthy technologies. And that really is what we're here to talk about. Jennifer wrote a piece in Open Democracy last week, which said in different terms something similar to what John said in his column at the weekend, which is this is not primarily about Cambridge Analytica. It's much, much bigger than that. And people have been missing what's really going on here. So we're going to try and unpick that before we get on to some of the wider questions about what the hell is Facebook and what does it want. John, why do you think that people have missed the real story? What's wrong with focusing on Cambridge Analytica? The main thing about Cambridge Analytica is that in a, in a way, it's kind of like a throwback to the to the day, good old days of Richard Nixon and the Watergate plumbers. Because when, when I was watching Alexander Nix, the former CEO of Cambridge Analytica, bragging to an undercover camera, so to speak, about, about the various kinds of dirty tricks that his outfit were capable of mounting, it reminded me of a very old-fashioned kind of political operation that we've had for, for many, many years. The only thing that made them different, their unique selling proposition, so to speak, was that in addition to doing all that grisly stuff, they also did data. And that's the point where where they, they differ from their peers and uh, c- contemporaries in the past. And, and the thing I've always felt about them since they first surfaced was they would claim this, wouldn't they? That they're just the kind of operation that's going to make boasts and claim, just as all the boasts they were making about the things that they could do to sort of disrupt this and disrupt that. Of course, they're going to claim they can mess with people's heads and they've got the data that allows them to. They're just snake oil salesmen. Well, that's what it sounded like to me. The guy that Nix reminded me of most was Gordon Liddy, who ran the Richard Nixon's kind of unusual operations executive. And then became a shock jock. And, and then became a shock jock. And I, I wondered for a while... What, Going to jail in between. I yes, he had, he had four years in jail plus. The point about it was that I was wondering, as, as I was thinking this, what kind of employment opportunities will now be available to Alexander Nix? And the only thing I could think of was... He could get a podcast. Well, he could, he could get a podcast or he could become a kind of mannequin for Savile Row. That was as far as I got. <laughs> the point really was that the claim about the data. And, of course, at that point, there's no question we now realise that they did, in some way, obtain a large trove of Facebook data. And there are claims that the weaponization of that data had a serious impact on the US election. And... Whether or not it did is not entirely clear at the moment, but there's no question that there was a serious attempt to use it. But the two things are separate. The two because, things are separate. Because, because that's the thing opinion. that a lot of these accounts just tend to run them together. On the one hand, unquestionably, something happened which is in some way scandalous to do with the use of data 
derived from Facebook. Yeah. And on the other hand, there are a set of claims about what may or may not have influenced the outcome of Brexit and Trump's election. And the second does not follow from the first. I agree. And the reason I said that Cambridge Analytica wasn't the real story in my column was, I think the real story is Facebook. And, and you've thought that for a while. I've thought that for a long time. I mean, since I've almost... <laughs> Since I've known you, you've been warning me that, that there are some big companies out there and there's some quite bad ones and then there's Facebook. Sure, and that big penny has finally started to drop. But the point was that Cambridge Analytica couldn't have done any of this if they hadn't had access to the kind of information and data that Facebook has about its users. And the key thing, as you said, is that people report this as though they'd somehow scraped or stolen or nefariously got hold of it. No, they hadn't. Well, that, that, Facebook as it were, knowingly gives this away. That's the really strange part of the story for most people who don't understand the surveillance capitalism business. Because in 2007, Facebook decided that it had to transition from being a social network into what technologists call a platform. In other words, a software system on which other people who are not Facebook can build things called apps. And the point about the apps was that once Facebook became a platform, if you wrote a particular app that ran on the Facebook platform, then you had, under the terms and conditions that you agreed with Facebook, you could access the, the personal data of people who used your app. And that was built into the system so that when eventually Alexander Kogan, it seems, took a large chunk of Facebook user data, he was doing so entirely under the terms and conditions of his arrangement with Facebook. In other words, this business of apps getting user data was what programmers would say, it's a feature, not a bug. It wasn't what was wrong with the system. It was what the system was designed to do. Because the purpose of becoming a platform and encouraging apps on it was to increase the use of the platform and to bring in network effects in so the platform became more and more dominant, which is actually what happened. And in a way, Facebook, they've got two responses, one of which is they say, this is a scandal, this is an outrage, we were somehow sort of duped. And on the other hand, they rely on consent. So they have been saying, but of course, everyone who uses Facebook has sort of consented to this, right? Uh, yeah, well, Facebook, uh, they claim anyway that um, Alexander Kogan's taking of the data was a breach of their rules, but the extent to which that's the case seems to be disputed. But yeah, there is an issue around consent uh, for what Facebook euphemistically calls data sharing, what really is is giving its uh, its customers here, of course, its advertisers access to user data so they can they can advertise to people. It's not really sharing at all; it's just selling access to people. They they also want to say that people who use Facebook have kind of consented to this. I mean, we know no one reads the terms and conditions, but yeah, they no, they want us to think that we sort of knew this was going on anyway. There's a lot of a lot of work being done on this kind of it's, it's called notice and consent. It's in, in privacy research. It's a major problem when it comes to data sharing and data and data gathering because, like you say, nobody actually reads privacy policies. There was a study I saw a few years ago where somebody worked out that the average person in an average year would have to spend 240 hours a year reading privacy policies. And of course, nobody does that. John's just put his hand there's, up. There's a, there's a wonderful story. Oh, I thought you were saying you were that person who no, no. did the two hundred. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I have not played. Because no you're always the person who's done the thing that no I've one else has no done. I've played no significant role in this, but 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 I do know somebody uh, who runs a security company. And some years ago, in the summer, I think in a highly popular area of London with tourists, they set up a free high-speed Wi-Fi service to anybody who wanted to use it. 
provided they signed up to the terms and conditions. And one of the terms and conditions was that I give you the rights to my firstborn child. And I think 300 people signed, uh, clicked on it to accept. Now, the, the point was they wanted to highlight in a satirical way the absurdity of this consent stuff. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem so funny now. It doesn't seem so funny now at all. But it, but it, was, it was such a brilliant way of, of exemplifying how people have allowed themselves to be taken for a ride. Jennifer, before we get back to Facebook, is there any meaningful way that people think that you can get users to understand what they're consenting to? I mean, is, is it always going to be a black box? I think it, it's always going to be a problem. I think, you know, especially when it comes to companies like Facebook, who have spent quite a long time figuring out how best to get people to accept these terms and conditions. So on virtually everything Facebook does, they run huge numbers of experiments to find out which is most likely to get people to do what they want them to do. So when it comes to things like uh, asking for consent to data sharing, they've obviously experimented to a, a huge extent to find out how best to present this information in a way that people will accept. Without um, reading. Without reading it. It's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's quite manipulative the way that they go about doing this. And then, of course, they turn around and say, but you consented to this. You, you didn't really consent to it because you didn't read it. And because Facebook has manipulated you into consenting to it by having experimented on millions of people to figure out how best to persuade people to, to do that. That's actually, I didn't know that. That's quite scary. And, and the, point, the point of the, of the firstborn child story w- was that nobody in their right minds presented with the, the terms and conditions that we click on in the street on paper would consent to these things. Because basically these, these, these arrangements say, you give us all the rights and in return, we give you uh, the ability to post uh, cats. So in a way, what Jennifer said to me is more sinister than the thought that they might have been targeting voters with ads that played on their prejudices. Because as someone who studies politics, that doesn't shock me in the sense that people have always done that. Maybe it's more efficient. Now, I'm not even sure it's more efficient. It might be. In some ways, it clearly is. But in other ways, there's evidence that the most efficient way to spend money is still to put posters on the side of buses. and But that they experiment even on understanding how to manipulate our consent in order that they can say that we've consented to it which means that they experiment on everything yes. Yes. So, so, yes. so there is nothing in human behavior that Facebook does not think is an appropriate subject for no. experimentation and manipulation one of the most interesting ways of looking at Facebook by the way is to go into it not as a user but as a potential advertiser and when you do that you see a different face. you see the offer you encounter a beautifully designed uh, automated system which is designed entirely to help you target your message at groups of people. And it's absolutely magical. It's a wonderful piece of, of software design. Once you get into it, you begin to realise how we got here because, uh, among other things, the software will make helpful suggestions about other audiences you might not have thought of. And that, that goes back a long way. But but essentially, you, you never look at Facebook the same way again if you've been in as an advertiser, a potential advertiser. And one of the problems that academic institutions have in uh, exploring this is, of course, that you get ethical considerations quite properly arising really quickly. I mean, for example, academics could do testing to see how, let us say, anti-Semitic messages manage to get targeted. But you couldn't get that past an ethics board. But it does happen. And that's the real revelation about this stuff. So do you think if we take the second half of the scandal or outrage at the moment, which is that this might have influenced these two elections, Trump, and now the story is about Brexit too, and and with Brexit it's moved on to this other firm, AIQ. The thing it reminds me of is the 
ball tampering story in cricket that's also doing the rounds at the moment in the sense that what's been revealed is something that we kind of know everyone does. I mean, the idea that campaigns push spending limits to the limit and that the Electoral Commission has to wonder whether that everything was declared and that they take every opportunity that they can to funnel money in directions that it might not. It goes on all the time in the same way that ball tampering in cricket, frankly, goes on all the time. But if you catch someone... And particularly if you catch someone that no one likes. So with the Australian one, what, what it's revealed is more, I think, how much people dislike the Australian cricket team than how shocked they are that anyone might try and make the ball bend in a slightly unnatural direction. And it's the same with Brexit and vote leave, in that it's, it's you know, two things that got jumbled up here, one of which is shock, or maybe it shouldn't be shock, about the ways in which campaigns try to take everything to the limit. And the other feeling that the result is illegitimate and that these people who won are bad people. And they're not, these are not the same thing at all. They're not the same thing at all. And, and the other thing about the allegation that you cheated and achieved a bad result is that you leave yourself then open to the repost, which is, uh, oh, you're just a bad loser. And I think that's, that's great. But which the Australians were always very good at. I mean, the difference is, I should say, that Dominic Cummings has not done what the Australian captain Steve Smith did and give a press conference in which he said, yeah, we cheated, which obviously is the thing that's made. I mean, that would give this story the same legs as the cricket You know one. more about cricket than I do, but this goes back a long way because it goes back to the body line. Oh, yeah, in the uh, same the way body that... the bodyline controversy many, many years ago, and Don Bradman and all that stuff. Yeah, and in the same way that dodgy electoral advertising goes back a long way too. What's so extraordinary about the cricket story is simply the naivety. I mean, it would be the equivalent of Dominic Cummings thinking that he could give a press conference in which he says, to be honest, actually, yes, we did break some of the rules. And people would go, oh, that's so good that you've been so open about this and move on, rather than, as has happened in the Australian case, everybody gets fired. But anyway, that's, we won't push that but analogy any further. But the, the big puzzle about, about the role of this kind of data used in elections is that it may or may not have had a decisive impact because people who are depressed by the outcomes of the presidential election in the United States and the Brexit referendum here they always point out that actually it hung on a knife edge. There was just a few percent, relatively speaking, and so on. I mean, in the case of, of the election of Donald Trump, there are claims that it comes down to about 77,000 voters in three states. Right. True, and I saw a study recently that said in the British general election in 2017, the Tories would have got an overall majority with, I think, 400 votes yep, swung the other way. Now, that, what those numbers are targetable. I think... When it comes to things like Trump or Brexit, I think it's probably more productive to, rather than to be looking at Cambridge Analytica is to question why somebody like Donald Trump was able to get 60 or million votes in the first place rather than why he got that extra 77,000 because he shouldn't have got those votes. You have to look at the socioeconomic factors that led to that rather than focusing on a scapegoat in Cambridge Analytica. But I think also we shouldn't forget that micro-targeting, I think, can potentially make a difference in in small, like you said, in the election in 2015. Last yeah, so year, I think both of them, actually. Yeah. So yeah. 15 and 17 in Britain because of first past the post in the constituent system you can identify yeah. in a few constituencies a few people in a few streets flip them and you win so what you want to do with micro-targeting is you're not necessarily trying to change people's opinion what you're trying to do is change the likelihood that they'll vote so donald trump ran in 2016 uh, a voter suppression campaign using micro-targeting so what they tried to do was they tried to target young black men with hillary clinton's comments about super predators they tried to target young white women with hillary clinton's marriage to 
Bill Clinton, and they tried to target far left kind of socialists or Bernie Sanders supporters to get them not to vote Democrat by pointing out to Hillary Clinton's links with the Goldman Sachs and, and whatever. So not not to try and persuade them to vote for Trump, because no, that would be hopeless, but, but simply not it's not worth getting out of bed to do yeah, this. Absolutely. Because... And it's the kind of thing that you can imagine having a big effect in somewhere like the UK where where elections, you know, are decided by a small number of constituencies and potentially a small number of votes, where if you can change turnout to even just a small amount, that can make a big difference. So Facebook actually ran some studies on this back in 2010 and 2012. Because they study everything. Because they study everything. So in 2010, what they did in the midterm elections in the US was put away just a wee, a wee nudge on Facebook where it gave, you know, the, the profile photo of a couple of their friends and said, you know, I voted, you know, click here when you voted kind of thing, just to see if that would persuade people, oh, maybe I should vote and then I can click on this thing. And of course it did. It made a very small difference. I think they worked out at roughly about 0.4% change in likelihood to vote, but that translates to about 300,000 votes across the size of the US electorate. So it is a tiny, tiny difference, but it adds up to a huge, huge number of votes. So you think that George Bush won the presidency by about 700 votes in Florida in 2000. That's that's how tight these things can be. So if you can really change turnout like that, that makes such a huge difference. It's not about changing people's opinion. It's about changing how likely they are to vote. So I was involved in a discussion recently about how referendums might be conducted in the future. And one of the things that people always ask is, why don't you have a turnout threshold to make, you know, if you can have a really momentous change, then you have to insist that a certain number of people turn out. And the counter argument is that what's become most sophisticated in electoral politics is persuading people not to vote. So as soon as you have a turnout threshold, actually the whole election becomes about persuading enough people not to vote. So it doesn't matter if your side loses, it hasn't passed the turnout threshold. This is dangerous now. I mean, if, if, if we've worked out not how to flip people's opinions about whether to vote for X or Y, but whether to show up at all, mm-hmm. politics becomes more difficult to manage. Yes, and even as we sit here, we have another interesting test case coming up because there's a referendum coming up in the Republic of Ireland about abortion. And already there are similar concerns about the use of social media for either influencing, for influencing turnout in particular, and also about trying to suppress the tendency that we saw in the previous referendum about same-sex marriage of young Irish emigrants coming home to vote which they did in, in very large numbers for the, the same-sex referendum. And if they were to do that again, then it would influence the abortion referendum. And the same thing is, is true, that the fear now is that particularly the weaponization of social media will actually impact on this. Everywhere you go now, people have woken up to the fact that there is something here. The most interesting thing about what Jennifer was saying, about the, the way in which if you target the right small group of people, then interesting things can happen is that most of this stuff seems to have been funded by a guy called Robert Mercer, who's a billionaire who runs a really interesting hedge fund. And also runs his own research outfit that studies these things, right? Doesn't he now fund quite serious research into these questions? But I I think at the beginning, one of the characteristics of, of Mercer's hedge fund was finding opportunities, market opportunities, where a very small intervention could make a very big difference. In a way, they're, they're just applying that to politics. It's a lot of sort of essentially consumer advertising stuff has, has come into politics. I mean, the first electoral campaign that really did this kind of micro-targeting to the extent that we that we think of it now was Barack Obama's 2012 campaign. He used data extensively in 2008 and it was the first big data campaign. But the first sort of real campaign where micro-targeting was a huge issue was 2012. And his, uh, the guy who he put in charge of all this was somebody who used to do advertising for a massive US supermarket. I forget which one, but... He was all about the data analytics and the, the loyalty cards and all this kind of thing. So they took the same principles that from 
that kind of marketing and applied it to politics. Obviously quite successfully he won. I mean the, the Romney campaign in 2012 said afterwards that Obama had found voters and turned out voters through micro-targeting that Romney, Romney's team didn't even know existed. That's how advanced uh, Obama's team was compared to Romney's Romney's work. And do you think part of the problem now is that two things are being driven potentially by this technology, one of which is that politics is becoming more partisan in that the gap between the two sides is getting bigger and bigger. So it's much rarer now for people to flip from one side to the other. It's pretty rare for a Republican to think, oh, this time I'll vote Democrat and vice versa. So that divide is getting bigger because of this technology. And at the same time, what that means is that persuading people to turn out or not to turn out, and potentially in small numbers, because elections are closer. I mean, it's another feature of our politics, which is part of the reason elections are exciting at the moment, is that they often do hang on a knife edge. You don't get these blowouts anymore. Trump versus Clinton, even Obama versus Romney, considering. Yeah, Yeah. and our British general elections now are absurdly close. So the two things are going on the micro-targeting might have more effect because the macro-effect of the technology is actually that it's divided us. I think also you have to be careful about how much you blame divide on, on the technology. I think that probably has an effect, but also, you know, we see it throughout history when economic times are hard, people get more divided. So I think there's a combination of, of that as well. So I think you've got to look at the socio-economic factors behind all this, as well as the technology factors, as well as the micro-targeting. But I think that is definitely a part of it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So can we talk about what surveillance capitalism then means in this context? Because, Jennifer, in your piece, you said that um, it's not just about Cambridge Analytica, but also not just about Facebook, mm-hmm. that this is a model that runs across government and big business, monopoly business. It affects elections, but it affects much more than just that. So just describe to us what surveillance capitalism means and then why you think it's so ubiquitous. Now. Okay, so surveillance capitalism is essentially the business model of the internet. It was invented basically by Google um, who realised that they could get the data that people were putting into their search engine and they could use that to predict what kind of advertising they wanted to see and then they could then deliver that to them and that was, that was essentially where it began. So they realized And we're talking that, about 15 years ago? Um, yeah, 10, 15 years ago, yeah, when they realised this went from being very unprofitable to being very profitable quite quickly because they started doing doing this and about 90% of Google's profit comes from comes from surveillance capitalism essentially. Um, so what they do basically is they try to track as much of your behaviour as possible. They're not necessarily interested in individuals, what they're interested in is huge numbers of people, so tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people. Identify sort of patterns and correlations in this behaviour and then figure out how best to sort of target those people. So if they can, example, for example, figure out that somebody shares a particular characteristic with somebody else and that people who share that characteristic are particularly likely to click on a particular advert, then they'll know to serve them up that advert. Now, they also run, we talked about experimentation before, they run sort of continual experimentation, like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of experiments every year to figure out how best to get people to click on adverts. So what you basically are doing every time you go on the internet is that you're being subjected to 
dozens of psychological experiments without your knowledge and without your consent where they so these ones you really haven't consented yeah, it's okay, not I like you've, no. yeah i mean this is happening without anyone yeah. being told and most people aren't aware of this so basically what they're trying to do is just figure out which adverts are going to be most effective at extracting your money essentially so they take advantage of there's uh, i'm sure you've all heard of you know, the book called nudge Richard Taller and Cass Sunstein. So there's this kind of form of, they call it hyper-nudging uh, on the internet because it's much more personalised, it's much more dynamic and it can be much more targeted. So in the real world, uh, you know, a speed hump could be an example of a nudge to get people to slow down. In in the online world, it's something that can follow you around from page to page to page and try different variations on each page and eventually they'll find which is most effective and they'll mark that down. We know that one works most effectively. But also if you don't click on it, they know that doesn't work so they learn from your inaction and from your action. So there's literally nothing you can do to not to not give them a useful data point. And it's part of the problem here, because I think everyone's aware, or they've become increasingly aware, of that feeling as you go from page to page that the advert for the socks mm-hmm. that you kind of looked at three weeks ago follows you. And it seems so sort of crude and unsophisticated. And I think a lot of people have this feeling that, really, this is the best you can do. You're chasing me with your socks advert. But actually, while we're thinking, is this the best you can do? They're doing the best they can do, which is much, much more sophisticated. It's much more sophisticated than most people realise. Virtually everybody realises, I think. Even people who study this kind of thing, I think probably don't quite have a grasp on just how sophisticated it really is. And getting more sophisticated, presumably, by the month. Yeah. I mean, the last two to three years must be exponentially... Yeah, as as machine learning and, and, and deep learning gets more advanced, this becomes more of a problem. And I think what we see is, you know, what they're essentially trying to do is they're trying to figure out your psychological vulnerabilities and then sell them to advertisers so that they can take advantage of them. That's what it is. That's what they're trying to do. So it's psychological manipulation on a global scale, and most people don't realise this. And it is now the underpinning of our economic system. Of, Not the of whole the, of, of it, the, of but the, of the online, the online economic system, yeah. But what, what's been very interesting and instructive about the last couple of weeks in relation to Facebook, which of course also has, has mastered this particular technology, is the frantic way in which the company is trying to obscure this fact What's very interesting, of course, in particular, is the use of its boy wonder CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, because time and time again, and we've had something like 11 crises in Facebook's recent history, and each time he finally is flushed out from under his duvet, and he comes to the public in some tightly controlled way, and basically the message is always the same, which is, gee, I'm awfully sorry sometimes he doesn't even say sorry but th- this is terrible we we, we must do better we, he must, always says we, we, must uh, do better. we are going to do better and here are the ways we're going to do it that's fine when you do it once or when you do it twice when you do it 11 times or whatever it is you've done it, then what, what comes to mind is, is a kind of seasoned alcoholic who's been called to account after he's been out the night before doing terrible things and he, he, he kind of begs for forgiveness and promises to do better and so on but the whole point was that he he cannot do anything about his alcoholism because, in, in Facebook's case, it's addicted to the use of data in this way. And it has no business model it, without it has this. No business. It it's not got a product no, it's, other it, than Facebook's this. Facebook's DNA is surveillance and behavioural modification. It's, you know, it's, that's what Facebook is. It's a surveillance company and its profits are through psychological manipulation and behavioural modification. That's what Facebook is. And I think it presents itself as this friendly social media company where you can come and connect. It's all about connecting people and community and sharing. It's not about that at all. It's about manipulating people by tracking their behaviour and watching what they do and the thing is if you're using Facebook people ask well why should I care about this or you know I don't mind if they track me with ads or talk about me with ads if you use Facebook you're not just complicit in your own manipulation you're complicit in the manipulation of your friends and your family and of everybody else who uses Facebook so 
it's not just about you. You're you're allowing your friends and family and everybody else you know and everybody else in the world who uses Facebook to be manipulated by using Facebook. You're facilitating that. And as you say in your article, it's not just that this remains in the domain of commercial advertising. There's also a fairly open door between these companies and government. Yeah, because so, yeah, interest um, in this data is not simply because no, people want to sell stocks. You can be sure that if, if companies want to know everything about you, then the government also wants to know everything about you if, if they can. So... In the US, Yahoo were threatened with a fine that start, was to start off at $250,000 a day, which was to double every week that they didn't hand over all their user data to the NSA. So you can imagine pretty quickly that would become a fine of tens, hundreds and billions of, of dollars. So this is the kind of thing that in the US the government does to to make sure that they get the data. And there's no legal protections in the US against this kind of thing. They have a, a doctrine called third party doctrine. And it essentially means that they can demand that companies give data to third parties and there's no there's no protections for the consumer. The, the US government is well in on this and, and getting hold of this data and the British government is increasingly getting you know, into this kind of thing as well. In a strange way, that illustrates one of the difficulties that we are going to have with this technology, which is that on the one hand, governments will be alert and they certainly now should be alerted to the implications of surveillance capitalism as a business model on the one hand. On the other hand, they need these companies. Because, because in a way, the kind of surveillance that governments may need for national security, for example, has effectively been outsourced to these private enterprises, which means that governments have to handle them with kid gloves. And government is not good at running hundreds of experiments, thousands of experiments. They presumably are reliant also on these companies for doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two steps here. So the first one is that we kind of, in, as far as surveillance is concerned, we kind of perform the first sort of sorting of people ourselves by going on social media and putting ourselves in the groups and, you know, liking certain things. And that first start makes it easier to sort of categorise people. But then predictive sort of algorithmic analysis means it's much more easier then to find out a lot more information about people that we haven't disclosed. They can find that out. So, for example, there's a study done a few years ago that looked at what you can find out just from Facebook likes knowing no other information about people you can find out with 95% plus you know degrees of accuracy sexuality age gender ethnicity whether you use illegal drugs and whether your parents were separated were the things they found just in that study just from things you've liked on Facebook and knowing nothing else about you so this kind of data obviously if it's for use of the state is extremely interesting to them and the state can perform their own algorithmic analysis and even on data as well so they can do this themselves and was that data that you just described or that series of experiments I mean wasn't that some of that work done in Cambridge and it lies behind what happened that, that's in the 2013 Cambridge. paper done by by Rust. Mikhail Kosinski yeah. um, David Stilwell and somebody else in Cambridge it was done in the psychometric centre and yeah. then it and then it got loose I want to come on to that because something else I want to talk about is the implications of this for people who aren't working for these companies about how they should experiment but John you you made a point in your column and it's something we've talked about before, I find it a very helpful distinction, which is between scandals and crises. So you actually call them just now 11 crises, but actually in your column, you call them 11 scandals. Yeah. The difference being, I think, I've always thought that scandals don't change anything. I mean, they change the personnel, the cast list changes, a scandal can bring down a government, it can unseat a prime minister, it can get someone fired or jailed or whatever. But structural change requires a crisis. And my view has been, and I agree with what you said in your column, 
that we've had a whole series of scandals around this technology. We have not yet had the crisis. And a crisis is something where people recognise that the problem is not about people, not about Alexander Nix, it's not about even Mark Zuckerberg. It's systemic. In the same way that the financial crisis, though, of course, there were scandals associated with it. Bankers, not many went to jail, but you know, some of the cast lists changed. But people recognised that the fundamental problem was systemic. What would it take... And I think this is one of the big questions for the next few years. What would it take for this technology to face a crisis rather than just a series of scandals? What it would take would be a concerted attempt by society in the form of regulatory authorities or governments to say that this particular business model is toxic for society and therefore it has to be reformed. And the crisis would be that... The crisis would be that Facebook couldn't, couldn't, couldn't make money if it had to, be honest. And yet Facebook is now a very big, very powerful Huge. business. Yeah. So there's no easy way. Once that happens, it's like the face-off between government yeah. and the banks. So, so re requiring Facebook to, to change, and I guess the same is true for Google, or any other company that, that engages in this, in this practice of surveillance capitalism, of monetizing user data in return for services, to say to Facebook, actually, you have to change. You can't, you can't do it this way anymore. It's a bit like saying to ExxonMobil, actually, you know what? You need to get out of oil and gas. But then with the financial analogy, it does take the whole system to pretty much have a heart attack, come close to have a near-death experience. Yeah. Is there not going to have to be systemic failure before we get the... The appetite for the crisis. You have to think, what, what does systemic failure look like for a company like Facebook or Google? There's no real, if Google or Facebook collapses, that's, you know, it's obviously, it's, it's very difficult for people who use Facebook. But in terms of the actual society as a whole, it's not as, it's not as, as major a problem as if the global financial system collapses. That's, you know, the difference in effect is, is much In, is in much a way, different. we need to run that experiment. <laughs> Because I, mean, I, I don't know. I think <laughs> yeah. it might be. I mean, who knows what, what would be the effects of a systemic failure on that scale of this technology, given how embedded yeah. it is in our lives. It's not like... I think it's very useful here to actually to make a distinction between Google and Facebook, because Google's way of sort of enabling access to information is phenomenal. It's it's incredibly useful. It's it's an incredible service. And the way that they organise and, and provide people this access is, is astonishingly good. So they are a surveillance company and they are like Facebook in that they target people, manipulate people and psychologically profile people and, and try to do all the same kind of stuff. But there is an underlying real genuine social good from what Google are doing where I'm not convinced there's the same for Facebook. I'm not saying that the motivations are particularly different, but the actual service that Google provides is something that I think society has come to rely on, whereas I'm not sure it's the same in terms of Facebook. And there is a digital divide aspect to this as well, because in poor parts of the world, essentially the only way in which many people who can buy a cheap smartphone or acquire a cheap smartphone, essentially it's Facebook that gives them access to the internet. So if we were in the rich West to say, well, actually we find this business model rather rather objectionable and we should shut it down in some way, we're effectively also saying to a lot of poor people, if Facebook didn't exist, you might have trouble connecting. Because the point about Facebook is that in order to attract people from poorer countries onto the platform because they have kind of saturated in the West. What they've done is they've given them offers, which is that if you use the Facebook app, you don't pay data charges. And, okay. and, and, and the that's really good for people in some ways, in some respects. In, in some places, particularly in South Asia, they've got, they genuinely have something close to a monopoly, don't they? They have yeah, 90, yeah. 95%. But that's also a major problem in that, for example, with the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya back in the last year, Facebook was essentially deleting 
stories about ethnic cleansing, the leading stories about what was going on and, and had very serious accusations of essentially covering this up for whatever reason they were doing it, whether it's to, to keep their user base happy or to keep the government happy or whatever reason they were doing it. Facebook's dominance of the internet in these kind of countries gives it such overwhelming power over, over what information gets out there, what information spreads, that when it does do things like cover up or delete stories about the ethnic cleansing in, of the Rohingya, then it's a real serious problem and people in the West just don't ask questions about that because it's just happening over there. It's not our problem. But it is our problem because it's it's everybody's problem that Facebook is in this position of dominance and of power and, and been able to determine what information people get hold of. And Facebook have always been in that business of always determining what information people get hold of. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about taking its role as, as a curator of content more seriously, but they've been doing it for 10 years. Since they brought in the algorithmic newsfeed, it wasn't just a timeline anymore. It was they determine what you see. That's when they started determining what information you find out through Facebook. And if they're in a dominant position, then they get to control the, the supply of information online, which is a real serious problem. Do you think anything at all will change because of this current scandal? No. No, I, I, I thought, I, I mean, I think the scandal versus crisis idea is yours. It goes back a long way. I've always thought it's a very useful lens for examining things. When the phone hacking scandal broke out in Britain some years ago, especially when the story about the dead girl, Millie Dollar's phone having been hacked, came out, I remember thinking, applying your lens, this this is a crisis. This will lead to it. It turns out that the phone hacking stuff was just a, a scandal. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed. And it, was, and it was a complete... I mean, scandal is... You can say it was an absolute scandal, but scandal doesn't... It changes people. It doesn't change systems. I think all that happened with the phone hacking scandal was the news of the world rebranded. Uh, you know, that's essentially what happened. Um, and a few people lost their jobs. Yeah, and a couple of people went to jail. Always a couple of people. And no doubt in this one, in the end, a couple of people will go to jail. To jail well, actually, probably not even There's a possibility that Mark, Mark has a monopoly on Facebook. Well, he's not a monopoly on Facebook, but he runs Facebook. He has the control of the voting shares. He does everything himself. There's a possibility that he will lose that sort of absolute control over Facebook because he might be forced to sort of make a couple of concessions. But in the grand scheme of things, nothing will change. And I was reading a piece this week about Uber saying they got rid of Travis Kalanick. Nothing changed. Of course it didn't. Because there's no real systemic push for it to change. One more question. And John, you, you raised this as well in the last few days. It does pose interesting questions in a university setting for people who do research in this area not for commercial purposes often with the best of intentions often simply because they are in pursuit of knowledge better understanding it's it's science after all computer science is science and you drew the analogy I mean other people have too with physicists working on nuclear fission and so on before the atomic bomb biologists who worked in areas that then become weaponized in various ways and you used the word earlier this has been weaponized I mean this is a question for you both it's not my field but what what dilemmas does this pose now for people who are working in this area for academic reasons? Should they be much more careful, more scrupulous, more agonised, or is it...? I think there are, there are kind of two answers to that. The first being that computer science and technology is kind of finally encountering uh, consequences in the way that physics and you know those kind of disciplines encountered you know, decades and decades ago, they're finally discovering that actually the things they do have real world effects. And, have, and did they um, not realise that? Before? I think a lot of time it's it's such a new discipline, such a new field, compar- comparatively speaking, that people don't necessarily think ahead. Um, I know things like ethics courses and uh, are beginning to 
to really be a thing in computer science, but that haven't always been a thing in computer science. And that's really, you know, to an extent, a, a new development. Do you think ethics courses change people's behaviours? Has Facebook run experiments on that? It would be nice to think they did. But <laughs> well, that they, they run experiments it, on well, it. Well, that it changed people's behaviour. Whether they do is a different matter. But I think there's also the other thing whereby if researchers are using sites like Facebook to gather data and if then it's being repurposed or appropriated in this way, that that really undermines the ability of other researchers to go and do genuinely ethical research on these platforms because people will be less willing to share information, less willing to actually to deal with academic researchers because they don't trust them. Why would they? But these are the perils of a monopoly culture, right? In that if you have one massive provider, the temptation is always to think you haven't got anywhere else to go. Yeah, and the problem about monopolies is that um, the technology is special in some respects, and in the main way it's special is because its various properties encourage winner-take-all outcomes. So that the technology itself has this imperative built into it, as it were. But I, I think in relation to responsibility for research and where it might lead, this breaks down into two areas. One of them is the responsibility that people doing curiosity-led research might eventually have, but you, you don't know you have responsibility until you've made a discovery. I'm pretty sure that uh, Michal Kosinski and David Thurwell understood pretty quickly the significance of what they had discovered, and in particular this astonishing discovery which they published in 2013, that from a very small number of Facebook likes, you could make the most, you could peer into somebody's soul. Now, they, they, they're very bright guys, and they would have understood that the significance of that. It's a bit like Leo Slizard for in 1933, crossing the road in London and suddenly understanding how you could make a nuclear chain reaction, suddenly, in an in instant. But to understand the implications does not suggest that you no, should that, suppress that's, it. It's, that, that, that's you, right. You can't... That's, that's right. It's, it's just okay. true. That, that's why that's one area, aspect of it, and it's not straightforward. But the other aspect of it is more straightforward, which is once it gets to the point where the weaponization or the harnessing of the idea becomes a reality, then you have uh, large numbers of people who then focus on making it happen. In other words, in our in our context, it is the software engineers, the fancy name for programmers, who now work for these companies. And these bright, clever, and often well-intentioned people find themselves in Facebook or in Google or in other companies like Uber. Where they're writing software which is essentially designed to manipulate people. You don't have to be a rocket scientist or an ethicist to realise there's a problem there. And what I don't know at the moment is how some of the people who work for these companies, uh, who are insanely talented and gifted, what are they thinking? Because in, in a sense, when you see what, what happens at the moment, somebody's son or somebody's daughter, but mostly a son, gets a job in Google or Facebook. And then the first thing you hear from their parents is, wow, he's got a job in Facebook. Okay, or he's got a job in, in Google. Or he's, 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 or he's in DeepMind or he's in one of these fancy companies. Okay, this is a sense of pride of sharing in something big and so on and so forth. Well, there's another way of looking at it, which is that would they feel the same if their child had suddenly got a good job in a tobacco company or an alcohol company? And it's true, even now, people don't, when their child gets a job at Goldman Sachs, there's a certain embarrassment. But um... I, I think the, once people get into the culture of a company, they begin to sort of buy into that. So I think people at Facebook genuinely believe they're doing the world a favour 
by making Facebook and letting people use it for free, as it were, which of course is not for free. And, and uh, the news of the last couple of weeks won't have changed, because I think we agree it's not going to change the political dynamic. You might get a few people who, who would begin to question things, but I, I think you know people buy into a corporate culture, and you see this kind of thing in in loads of loads of, loads of companies. Like so, for example, I don't know if you remember in January there was all the news came out about these massive flaws in basically every microprocessor in in the world, and. This is because companies had chased at virtually all at cost speed, being able to process as quickly as possible, rather than, you know, actually security as being a, a really key consideration. So it's question is, it's not, you know, what are they thinking when they do this? It's what are they not thinking when they do this? They weren't thinking about security and people at Facebook, I think they're not thinking about, about some of the things they should be thinking about because they genuinely believe that what they're doing is a social good. And it's true that the financial crisis was a crisis and it changed lots of things, but the internal culture of banking from my limited knowledge of it, isn't radically different than it was 10 years ago? No, and but what, what's even worse is, in a sense, the easy way of creating debt-loaded organisations continues. So the, the systemic flaw at the heart of the system remains. If you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, we'll link to a couple of past episodes where we discuss many of these themes, Pax Technica with Philip Howard from Oxford, but also a conference that John and I hosted on what this means for power in the world, the power switch. In a few weeks, we're going to be talking to James Williams. He's the guy who won the Nine Dots Prize. He's the guy who worked for Google. And then he had a moment where he realized he needed to do something else with his life. We're going to be talking to him about his new book about the attention economy. And if you'd like one of our tote bags, we have a few left. You can get them at our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com. I kind of feel like we're doing (laughs) surveillance capitalism. Do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. So, so the kind of cheating that everyone does apparently is that they take a sweet out onto the field, yeah, and then they get so it turns their saliva kind of viscous, and then that, yeah. and that's kind of on the edge of cheating. But this was um, sandpaper. <laughs> And also they made the mistake, it's, there are 24 cameras and the piece of paper that, to which they'd attached the sort of, was bright yellow. Yeah. <laughs> so this guy pulled out from his underwear this bright yellow piece of paper with sandpaper on the back. Jesus. I know, so it's kind of... I, I can see why they now do appeal to Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.